Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. On this show we have three central planks to our writing manifesto. Plank the first to help you write more, plank the second to help you write better and plank the third to help you be a little bit happier as you do those things. To that end, I read listeners' first pages and I give them feedback on how they've done and things I think they could make even better. I sometimes talk about my own writing process or ways that we can write books and stories or aspects of the craft and often in fact exclusively for the opening of uh, the current season season five i sometimes put arbitrary lines down and say that's the end of one season here's the beginning of another um for the first four and this is the fifth episode of season five um, i've had guests on to talk about books the books that they've written uh, i'm on a kind of like little bit of a non-fiction kick at the moment but lo- lots of the guests don't exclusively uh, write non-fiction they also write fiction or poetry or all sorts of things but today uh, i've uh, got the uh, psychologist uh, lucy Falks onto the show to talk about her book which is called losing our minds what mental illness really is and what it isn't Uh, It's being, at the time of recording, uh, is the end of February and it's coming out again in April as a paperback, um, just with that subtitle as its new title. So it will be called uh, What Mental Illness Really Is and What It Isn't. Um, I've been writing, you know, if you've listened to the show a lot, that I talk a lot about mental health and mental illness and my own experiences and also just you know we're all enthusiastic end users of a brain we all have emotions uh right sorry to exclude anyone out there who's functioning without a brain single tear rolling down your cheek um you're still valid and i love you but for the majority of us who who do have sort of broadly similar equipment to be working with uh, even if you know you don't manage something that is uh, normally you know within the compass of what is traditionally considered uh, a mental illness because we you know we get into this when we talk but you know even that term is you know for some people has got kind of ideological well it definitely has ideological uh, connotations it's just whether you think those are reasonable ones or not or whether that is a fitting model and certainly what isn't it is doesn't doesn't come under the rubric of that um ha, has changed over time that's undeniable um and also because i've you know i've got a book coming out about anxiety uh, i just was you know i'm interested to speak to people who've been writing in the same broad area to see how they've handled it now lucy very clearly is is more qualified than me because you know her background is in you know her professional expertise is in the area of uh, research and psychology uh, so we talk a bit about that and how she got into writing a book and you know fundamentally what what it's about and how she went about putting down on paper and creating as a book a topic that you know I don't think it's uh, controversial to say I don't think any academic would would particularly argue that uh, most like research papers uh, that you read are not intrinsically 
page turners, right? They're, they're quite, they can, you know, they can be interesting, but they tend to be quite heavy going to kind of like chew your way through. And so, you know, we talk a little bit about how she's taken those, you know, this is a, this is a book that tries to ground itself in science and you know this i've been talking with a few guests about this actually how you take something that's kind of grounded in science and that reflects sometimes ambiguity and and not make it sort of boring or woolly basically and and i and i think uh obviously i don't think that this book is that but i think uh what lucy's book sort of brings out and we talk about it in our interview is that sometimes those ambiguities are sort of the very lifeblood of uh, of the book you end up writing, right? Because it's not just one thing. If it were one thing, you could probably knock it out in a paragraph or two, right? If there were some simple answers. But instead, when it's sort of more thorny than that, and when you're trying to navigate like various needs and you're trying to reflect the messy truth which is you know what it's like being a human being um you sometimes need the space that only a book provides you know not sound bites in a five minute interview not an article in a newspaper but a whole book so that's what we talk about and the nature of mental illness and uh how lucy went about putting her research into book form i hope it's interesting to you it's certainly a really fascinating uh, and insightful chat for me i've put a link in the show notes uh for you can either get the hardback uh, losing our minds or you can pre-order uh the new paperback uh, what mental illness really is and what it isn't but i'll put a link in the show notes if you enjoyed the chat today but you'd like to so you know because obviously we can only really skim the surface of what's in the book uh then you can go there and you can uh, pick it up for yourself. Uh, and, you know, it's it's available in ebook form as well. So if you literally cannot wait more than sixty seconds you, after uh, this chat, you will be able to go and grab a copy and immediately start reading. Um, I hope that these episodes, where I'm talking to sort of non-fiction authors, are interesting and useful to you. I know not everyone is necessarily you know working on a non-fiction book but i think one the subject matter is always interesting and useful because even when you're writing fiction right like one of the ways that you get content is by reading non-fiction and learning about new stuff and going oh and that that is kind of grist for the mill we read fiction for style and we read non-fiction for content when we're you know making stories but also if you've never considered writing non-fiction uh I, I hope that the, these start sort of giving you, I think often authors, when we talk to them, you know, we talk about fiction writers, we often talk about their process. And we when we talk to nonfiction writers, we often talk about the subject matter. And it's quite nice, I think, to start thinking about ways, you, you know, that, that, that we can think of nonfiction books. Or that what I hope that this little series has been doing for you is give you ways of start thinking about nonfiction books as art as projects and as things that you can do themselves now obviously you're probably not going to be covering the exact topics that the guests i've had on are are, are covering but there are parts of your life that you have expertise in even if they're just you know your life 
Or alternatively, the other way that you can write a book, which is how I tend to do it, is that hey, I don't have an expertise in an area, but I go, right, I'm going to go on a journey to find out everything I can. And because of the unique way that my brain is funded, uh, I, I, I tend to kind of get hooked on that kind of journey and uh and, and finding out everything i can now whether i represent those topics well i i don't know there's a always a temptation to kind of come in with the uh quote-unquote wisdom of the outsider and go i've just come into this uh field that a month ago i knew nothing about and i think i've got some insights that none of you people who've been working at it for your entire lives have spotted here's what i've noticed uh that is always the peril and of course the excitement look at me the the maverick coming in and telling all these professionals what's what never they love it they love it researchers love it when you come in and uh, just tell them your little pet theories <laughs> but it's great i love i love writing non-fiction at the moment it's it's hard work for me i'm not someone who you know, I do agonise over stuff and I've, I've found myself kind of getting gummed up. But I feel well, I, I would say it feels very rewarding to me. And I hope that these episodes have been useful to you. If you'd like to read my own nonfiction, then um, there'll be a link in the show notes also to uh, pre-order Coward, Why We Get Anxious and What We Can Do About It, which is coming out in May. There is also going to be an ebook version and there will be an audiobook version recorded by me. If you like that sort of thing, I am, I can only imagine if you're listening to this now, uh, you either can tolerate the sound of my voice or you're a masochist. Um, and if you like the show and you'd like to continue supporting it, first of all, I would say just, you know, uh, please share it and uh, try to check out the work of authors that I have on the show. And if you particularly enjoyed an interview, you can, you know, drop them a line or uh, say hello to them on Twitter and say, hey, I really enjoyed listening to you. I think that's just always nice. Kind of supports the show, but really mainly it just will make them feel good. Um, but you can um, drop me a few beans via my coffee page. That's ko-fi.com forward slash Tim Clare. There's a link again to that in the show notes. Really appreciate it. It helps me keep the lights on, play, pay my hosting costs, all that kind of thing. Right. I think that is exactly the right amount of ado. And so we can just um, leave the adoing uh, to one side, consider that box ticked and move on to today's interview. This is me chatting with the author and researcher Lucy Fox. I insist that you enjoy. The first thing I wanted to ask and it's not a terribly uh novel question but um when did you first develop an interest in the mind and how what makes people tick well i suppose i've always been in kind of um informally interested in it you know as a as a teenager I would say um and then I was going to do medicine at university and then I took psychology just kind of on a bit of a whim 
um, as an A-level um, because I started history and I didn't like it. So I was like, what else can I change to a month in? And just went for psychology as a, I guess it felt like a bit of an then like a sort of indulgence. Like, oh, I'm quite interested in this, but it's not, um, you know, I don't know, it's not career path, I thought. And then I took it and I just fell in love with it. The idea that you could sort of formally investigate and think about people's behaviours and minds um and yeah so I I took that and changed changed my mind and decided to do psychology at uni so I've yeah I've always informally been interested in very interested in people um yeah always I think can you remember I I wonder if like when you were studying it at a level like if you can remember were there any like moments where you were you know like a particular study or a particular psych psychological school or a particular you know moment where you were like oh this is really cool or some like revelation or sort of principle that clicked with you that you were like oh because I, I mean I remember studying psychology and just like mostly it was kind of like the goofy studies that like later on we've discovered are not very yeah like they make really great stories and then later on you go oh that's not really very well evidenced but it isn't it fascinating yeah the idea of it is cool yeah and I think it's a it's a shame that we have lost some of those neat stories um not really from a level to be honest but I do I mean there's probably a million that I can't think of right now but one thing that does come to mind that was in the book originally, but we ended up getting rid of it. Because I really remember in a course we did it um, undergrad on what was then called abnormal psychology. So basically about um, mental health problems. In the back of the book, the final two pages listed all the disorders in the DSM, what was then the DSM-4. And I remember being struck by just how many different ways the mind and the brain can dysfunction or go wrong and I, I really remember being struck by you know every single facet of human behavior and thought and emotion has can go wrong I mean of course it can I guess obviously since then I've realized that this that DSM list wasn't a kind of catalogue of truth but back then I, I thought it was and I I, I yeah, remember being fascinated by that it must be yeah I can imagine it must be quite like a I know it sounds odd, but I wonder whether it's like there's something quite relieving about like feeling like you found the kind of user's manual and you're like, oh, fine, we've got it all. It actually fits on these pages. That, that, Definitely. That and I think that is part, especially a kind of lay person appeal of the DSM. Like, oh, I need to get my hands on that so I can figure out what my problem is called. Um, I think there's certainly, yeah, definitely a strong lay person appeal to um, the that categorization of you know all the bad bits that you don't like about your mind for example can you and can you uh talk a bit about um so you went to study a, you got a dig an undergraduate degree in psychology right and and then um c can you can you just uh, take us up to today and what your what your position is now what your because i think a lot of people um I've just also noticed, and I think I was like this for ages, actually, like the, there's a lot of confusion around the difference between like a psychologist, a psychiatrist, a 
psychotherapist, a counsellor. Like for a lot of people, those are terms that they can't readily distinguish between. Like they kind of know the field that they're in, but they're not quite sure. So I, I wonder if you could just uh, give us a, a sort of a uh, little primer on those. Yes. Okay. So I'll answer that first and then tell you about my <laughs> my career trajectory. So psychiatrist is a uh, medical doctor who's gone through medical training and then specialised in psychiatry. And um, broadly, they're more focused on medication and drugs as a treatment and, and um, broadly try and fit what we would call mental illnesses into a kind of yeah, illness disorder model. Um, yeah, that, I mean, that's probably an oversimplification, but that is broadly what distinguishes psychiatry. Then psychologists have done a psychology degree and then specialised uh, if they're treating patients in an extra three year degree, which is clinical psychology or counselling psychology. Uh, and then they're qualified to treat patients. And as a basic distinction, they tend to be less interested in, um, well, they don't can't prescribe drugs, but they tend to be more focused on um psychological explanations so kind of uh, therapy um, but then other people can also give therapy so counsellor and psychotherapist are not protected terms in the UK so pretty much anyone can um, so you might be a psychotherapist and have extensive experience and qualifications in um, therapy or you might have kind of downloaded a certificate off the internet so it's quite if and it's why it's so difficult if someone does want therapy and they're trying to figure out who the right, you know, so many people have come to me and said, is this person legitimate? Is this the right kind of person I should be looking for? Are these the right qualifications? Why should I go for the £110 person when this £50 an hour person seems fine? Um, so, yeah, I I'm, like unless you happen to work in this field or have been treated, it's a bit of a minefield, the terminology, I think. Thanks. And um, and you were going to say your um, which which of those uh, um, of that umbrella that you fall. Yeah, so I did none of those technically, but I did uh, yeah psychology undergrad, and then I went into research. So I worked for a few years as a research assistant with various different people, so helping out uh, on other people's uh, research projects. So I did a year working in a child anxiety clinic in Reading. Uh, with uh, Kathy Creswell, who was brilliant and very helpful in um, helping me progress um, through the path that I went through. That sounds that sounds like an amazing and probably quite emotionally uh, intense sort of like field to work in. It was really fascinating. So I never, I'm like, not then and not ever since. I've I've never treated patients. It's always been in the kind of behind the scenes research side of things. But my job there was to watch videos of um, a child and their parent who had come to the anxiety clinic because they had anxiety problems doing various different tasks. And then those videos were coded for things like maternal warmth um, and sort of maternal overprotection and, you know, various characteristics of the child as well. But it was stuff like the child had to give a speech, like make a five minute speech about their family to a camera like the, there was a task designed to stress the child out a little bit um to trigger some level of anxiety to see how they how that uh, interaction would go um and yeah some of it was really some of it was very funny very interesting um and some of it was sad yeah um but it was incredibly 
taught me a lot about research, but it also taught me a lot about the sort of intergenerational transmission of anxiety. So, um, I mean, it's most of the work is done on mothers because they tend to be the ones who are more willing or able to come for research. But dads are relevant too. But it taught me a lot about how anxiety can kind of proliferate through families. That that sounds. When you said you said some of it was sad, which I can imagine, but you said some of it was funny and that's like what, what was what was that stuff like I can't remember very much of it now but I remember one child did a, uh like a presentation about their family and they listed off uh like all their so it's like my mum my dad all their pets down to like goldfish with names <laughs> and then like and a sister <laughs> little stuff like that that wasn't really anything to do with the anxiety um but yeah it was very sweet and interesting to watch and i I guess also i I guess like when you that but i I suppose the thing that is key about that as well is it just reminds you that you're dealing with people right and i know that sounds silly but i i i know from reading lots of research myself that at some stage just kind of nihilism can set in you've got all these lovely academic quite hygienic terms and you can forget that like on the end of each of these numbers there's a you know unique diverse human being who is potentially suffering and it sounds like you, you know it was you were really getting the human side of like what these conditions are you know they're not just factors they're they're people it's so important and i'm and i'm sure you're aware of this too when you're writing about anxiety but it's yeah it's so easy for it to write about it in quite a clinical sanitized way and that's absolutely what you need to do in academic writing but yeah you should never forget the people that you're writing about you know I read somewhere that you should you should write academic papers as, as, with the idea that someone with this condition or this problem might be reading it um and, you know and I, and I feel like that having had some of these problems myself some of the stuff I read it's like you you, you know it's so clinical and so well clinical in the sort of negative bland kind of way it's so removed from what this really feels like so yeah it was and yeah this was children and parents who had agreed to do this study which was you know stressful really and the the mums were you know they knew they were being filmed and being evaluated and um so it's just yeah it's always great anyone who agrees to do any research you know it's giving up their time so yeah it was very informative um as a start and then, should I keep going with my career? Yes, yes please. please. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> then I did a slightly random research assistant post looking at gesture, about individual differences in why people gesture, which was fascinating. It just wasn't anything to do with mental health. Um, and then I got onto this PhD programme in uh, UCL, which I feel like just changed the whole trajectory so I'm still really grateful for the people who gave me that opportunity because I see the people who get on PhD programs now and as I I mean it was competitive then but I I feel like we've had a chance now compared to you know with the experience that I had then so I feel very grateful that I got that opportunity and then I had uh yeah it's a four-year PhD had exposure to several different labs and then settled on a PhD in psychopathy so people who have psychopathic traits and how that's related to their social functioning um and then I did a 
postdoc for two years. Um, so my, yeah, my PhD was with SC Veeding, and then I did a postdoc with Sarah Jane Blakemore on a big trial looking at teaching mindfulness in schools. And how that, did, how did how that, did that, that go? <laughs> so um, the I don't know if they've got the main results yet. The the kind of arm of the trial that we did, it basically didn't didn't work in the way that we hoped it would work. So this sort of hypothesis was is that it would change um, your the way in which you paid attention in emotional settings. So it would allow you to kind of resist emotional distractions. That was the hypothesis and it didn't work. And this was it took six years to find that out. But it, it's important to <laughs> itself. And I, in a way, I'm not surprised. I mean, this is science, but it's just like it's not great. This is the frustrating side of science, right? Is like sometimes you, you like do trials and they take a long time and and you get they're not disappointing results in the sense because you're it's information, right? But like, it, yeah, it feels well. That's and that's an important shift in thinking that you shouldn't think um, that you know that that was a waste of set six years because it didn't work in inverted commas you know that knowing that there wasn't an effect is really important because there's there so much hype around mindfulness in schools when we especially when we started um I don't think it's all that surprising in a way because it's so noisy and messy to try and learn mindfulness in that setting you know if you're an adult that chooses to sign up to a mindfulness class that's very different to a child doing it at school when they haven't when they're not necessarily interested in it so you don't even know that the kids who are in the mindfulness condition are even doing mindfulness you know you can sit through a mindfulness class and not engage in mindfulness so I don't think it's all that surprising that at the end of the trial you don't see big differences between the groups doesn't it's it's, yeah it's tricky isn't it to know what's happening on the kind of like implementation and dissemination end if that's the kind of like there's lots of points of failure down the chain right exactly um so it's it doesn't necessarily mean mindfulness doesn't isn't effective for some people i think it absolutely is but it means um that it's difficult to have uh you know a big impact on doing it in a school setting you know big enough to see statistical effects this is really this is this is great Lucy because it's kind of getting us on to like the kind of we're already getting into I think something that is throughout your book um which I found really really compelling to read is just how um you know how it you we can't it's not as easy as just going a study was done and we found that x works that like there's always under the surface a lot of crunchiness and a lot of something doesn't disprove something and it doesn't prove something it's just a piece of evidence and uh, I think that's not very intuitive to well I think even people who have been working in the air field for years let alone kind of lay person reading about it I I wonder if we can go from like where we just talked about to like where you sort of end what you ended up doing and how that maybe led you to want to write uh losing our minds yes so i did so that job was informative and then i went and did a, um, a lectureship at york and and became increasingly interested in student mental health and both of those jobs it was uh about the changing conversation 
Uh, well, I noticed the change of conversation about mental health in schools and universities, this enormous enthusiasm to talk about mental health and to do something about it and to assume that there's a big problem going on um, in young people, all in extremely well-meaning. But in those years, I started finding that I would see stuff about mental health and almost feel annoyed by it or frustrated by it. And I started asking myself, why, why was that? And I also wondered, because when I had my own experience of these problems, no one talked about this. There was nothing about it at schools and very little at universities, very little in the public conversation. So I started asking myself if I had had that, if I had had depression and anxiety problems now, would this public discourse have been helpful? And I kept finding that the answer was no. And I was really interested in why that was. And I, I think that was what motivated me to write the book, this frustration that there was all this good intention. But actually, for someone who'd had these problems myself, I thought it was misfiring a bit. So that's what set me off on the on the book. And and can you give I I, I always whenever I I started asking people to to tell me what their book, book's about only because there was a period where to sort of demonstrate that I'd read it to them I would I found myself summarizing an author's own work to them as if they hadn't read it which then felt weird like I was going and so and then so now I, I'm in the now I just lampshade the fact that I'm asking you for the listener's benefit to say what you feel like it is. But then I feel like I'm asking people to pitch their own work, which I don't mean it like that. But just, well, you know, what's the book about is what I'm saying. So it, it starts off on the premise that we're talking a lot more about mental health at the moment. And there's also an awful lot of concern that uh, there's a kind of collective mental health crisis, especially in young people. Um, and... Despite all the enthusiasm, I think there's a lot of confusion. I think there's still very poor understanding about what these different terms mean, what different disorders are, why they start, what you know, what the difference between a, you know an emotion and a disorder is, what we're supposed to do about it. So I wrote the book to try and provide a, a map of what we know so far based on the research, and trying to be very honest about you know the mess of it and what we don't know, um, with the goal of providing some reassurance and some clarity for people understanding themselves and yeah the people they're close to and the kind of society around them yeah because you start off um i noted you've got a, a quote from uh you quote nathan filer um talking about uh how even the term mental illness is not without controversy you know that that, that is something that's considered to have uh ideological valence if we wanted to put it in academic terms and I, I i just i think for a lot of people who are sort of not um uh immersed in the area that will come as a bit of su a surprise the idea that a term like mental illness or mental health disorder uh would be subject yeah subject to some like what what could that possibly possibly be the objection to that and I wonder if um you could sort of we could start having a, a and this idea again that there's a, a mental health epidemic I think most people I speak to would say well a, a course life is much more stressful much more anxiety producing more people are depressed uh 
you know, two days ago, there was an article in the the Guardian saying that there's a there's a mental health crisis and a mental health epidemic in in Great Britain. So I wonder if you could we could start, you know, some of what you talk about in the book start sort of like levering up what's underneath some of those terms that I think a lot of people intuitively would not spot like a big, you know, uh, question mark over. I mean, this is part of the problem with those articles in The Guardian and everywhere else. I think it becomes sort of self-fulfilling. Like people think, oh, there is a mental health crisis because I read, you know, because the newspapers say that there is. And then every time there's some difficulty in their own life or in, um, you know, at work or the young people in their lives, they think, oh, well, this is a sign of the that epidemic that I read about. And then it sort of becomes um, self-fulfilling in a way. Um, one slight complication is that, so I was very interested in whether this rise in mental health problems was um, what was causing it and to what extent it was real. But I was interested in this up to, um, you know, 2019, early 2020. And then the pandemic came along and it was like that really changed the conversation because suddenly everyone was very interested in what the pandemic had done. But this conversation had been going on you know, in the sort of five, 10 years before COVID. Um, so what I tried to do in the book was unpack how how do we even, how do we ask the question whether things are getting worse or not? And I'm not particularly an advocate of saying, oh, it's definitely not getting worse, but more to say that it's actually a difficult question to answer. Um, so what I kind of laid out in the book is that if you if you see if you ask a bunch of people to complete a depression questionnaire and then ask an equivalent group of same age people to fill in the same questionnaire 10 years later and you see an increase then there's three possible reasons why that's happening the first is that um people really are more depressed now than they used to be um in which case you need to ask why is that um common answer is social media but it's there's probably more to it than that uh well well there must be uh the second possibility is that people are just more willing to admit that they have depression now so uh and this is you know stigma would exist even on questionnaires you know you're you're more able to admit to tick the box saying that i cry a lot now because there's less shame and stigma um this is exactly the same if you look at data in terms of uh, antidepressant prescriptions you know that's and they've doubled in 10 years one factor is probably that people are more able to come forward now the third possibility which is I don't remotely think is the whole picture but I think it's an interesting piece of the puzzle which is that people are now interpret more willingly interpreting things as problems um than they so the 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 wording of the questionnaire is actually being interpreted differently now so, for example, if you get a questionnaire item saying, I feel down, which is, you know, one item on a questionnaire for depression. I've, you know, I feel down a lot in the last two weeks. People actually are more readily interpreting common experiences as, as counting as problematic feeling down than they might have done in the past because of this shift in conversation. So the point I was trying to make in the book is that when we do see an increase it's very difficult to know the the differing contribution of all those three factors 
Yeah, I was going to say this was all pre-pandemic. So obviously now the pandemic has arrived and that's a very obvious potential factor for why people might, you know, the first reason for why people might genuinely be suffering more. Can I ask, I I just want to dive into this because I find it so fascinating and it gets almost never, I almost never heard it talked about. And I think for a lot of us, it's really fascinating because to hear, you, you write a bit in the book about, uh you know the some problems with sort of self-report through uh questionnaires um and that uh, one alternative to that is people being sort of interviewed uh and and people talk, talking a, a, about that now oof, what, are there advantages and disadvantages like I, I guess what i'm getting at is, is 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 you know if you don't if you don't get people to fill in a questionnaire how how do we get at how people are feeling you know are there different ways that are there different ways of get getting this data because that's you know there are clear problems with potentially with uh questionnaires but like how does a as a psychologist like what are the ways that we can get at how somebody's feeling yeah well it's it's all there are various different methods and they all have their pros and cons so the, the advantage of questionnaires and some people poo poo questionnaires altogether and say you know you you it's too dependent on people's capacity for introspection but actually they do pretty reliably are pretty reliably associated with various other um measures of you know of interviewing people in more detail for example um the advantage of questionnaires is that they're cheap and you can ask lots and lots of people the more expensive alternative is to interview them with uh, a kind of standardized list of questions about um, various potential symptoms and how long they've been going on for Uh, so that's better because you get more depth but it's still you still need someone uh, clinically trained so not just trained in asking the questions to kind of make that final decision about whether these apparent symptoms that they're saying yes to should count as a disorder because a lot of people if you go and interview them will say you know yes I am very scared of spiders for example but if it's not causing them distress or sort of affecting their life regularly then a lot of people would say that shouldn't count as a disorder but that gets missed if you just do the kind of mass interview option. Well, can I just ask a well it sort of does Lucy but I don't want to ask what might be a silly question you said they can ask more in-depth questions but why can't you just have a longer I, I i i why can't you just have a longer questionnaire like what is the human are they are they watching for body language are they what's that 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 person who's interviewing what questions can they ask that you know why can't you just have a a, a questionnaire with more like how stressed points? you are yeah it's a good question and i don't don't fully know the answer to be honest I think the question is more of a resources one and that there's just caution from the researchers that they don't want to just train up research assistants and psychology graduates to make that judgment so I think the whole point that people would argue about that final diagnosis decision that you really need a lot of clinical expertise so it needs to go beyond just oh they scored above four on the distress questionnaire um but that's quite a nitpicky point i mean a lot of people are happy to go with the um 
you know that it's it's pretty much as good as we've got if we want to look on mass at a, a population to to train people up to ask these questions see how many boxes people tick and if they tick enough then say they um count as well it's often called a probable disorder which is how they kind of get around so there was a big nhs study about children adolescents um recently and they used the term probable disorder to get around this issue that it hadn't been officially diagnosed it had just been with these um interviews and they ticked off enough potential symptoms yeah was that one a mix of interviews and but the interviews were not all with the children some of them were with the parents or with teachers is that right or is that the pre Correct, because below a certain age, you ask the parent rather than the child themselves. Yeah, so I, I and, and that one again, I think that was also weighted because there was an assumption that the worst children wouldn't be at school. This is, And we're getting into kind of sampling bias now as well. But like the kind of people who are going to have the time to answer a somewhat burdensome questionnaire, right, or who are going to be willing to speak to you or open up to a I mean how can you talk a bit maybe a bit about the sort of biases that can creep in when we're trying to get at different populations and or we're getting you know you talked about children giving a five minute presentation to a group of potentially strange adults like um, different children with different life experiences might that might have different levels of stress for them can you talk a little bit about that I mean it's essentially what you just said is that you not everyone has the time or the resources or capacity to take part in um, research studies Um, so yeah the particular study that I'm thinking of it was um, you know in a reasonably middle class area in order to get that far um so what happened is that they would bring in when children were there for anxiety treatment in the clinic they would ask do you want to participate in a research study obviously in order to get to that point you need to have had a parent who's got the resources and knowledge and ability to get you to the clinic in the first place and then also the one who has availability to sign up to a research study you know to bring you in to the university and take part in these um take part in these studies i mean one good example is if the if the parent has severe enough mental illness themselves they're not going to easily have the resources to bring you in and take part in this optional study um yeah poverty is relevant certainly uh you know how do you even i mean i think they paid for i mean they must have paid for travel but it's just yeah it's always an issue no sample is ever perfect so the way you get around that is you, you try and ask you try and anticipate these things in advance and remove barriers. You try and get access to people who might not um, so immediately have access to, you know, where you know where do you put your adverts, for example. Um, but it's always imperfect. It doesn't make the research pointless. It, it can still tell you interesting things about mechanisms and stuff, but you need to be cautious about generalising it, I guess. Can you... Uh, ba- I'm not trying I'm not trying to push you to um, commit to anything after you've just said how difficult it is and how careful we've got to be but based on what you've been talking about uh, do you have a sense you know even tentatively whether things you know more people are 
experiencing mental illness or or, or sort of major disruptive emotional distress i don't I, I'm, I'm sort of i'm aware that i'm using the term mental illness and you, you're saying that's not without problems itself so i don't want to push you into committing to that term but um i wonder because i know you do go into this a little bit that looking at all of this and then what it might suggest and i, I wonder if you could just talk on that because as you say although we want to make all these caveats and re respect nuance it doesn't mean that the research is useless and we can draw no inferences from yeah. it. Yeah. Um, I certainly think that the changing conversation and this massive cultural shift in how we talk about mental distress, certainly anxiety and depression, um, how much there's been a shift in not only the, just that it's acceptable to say it, but that potentially in some corners it's even rewarded or encouraged I think that's definitely you know I'm comfortable saying that I think that's playing a role I don't think it's the whole explanation and I don't think we can ever know but I'm I'm skeptical about the idea that at the exact time when we decided to start talking much more about mental illness and destigmatizing it also coincidentally there was a sudden increase in these problems I think it must the changing conversation and the reduction of stigma uh, which are all good things broadly has also had this knock-on effect where pe people are more willingly admitting genuine problems which is brilliant but also the kind of collateral damage is that I think some milder problems are being interpreted and talked about as though they're problems and that worries me and bothers me especially in young people. I'd love to hear you talk about this more because I've heard terms like uh um uh like the dysphoric treadmill this uh and uh um oh it, uh some uh, i, I want to say uh oh it's not diagnosis creep i can't remember what the term is for yeah yeah where 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 where, where the sort of the, the 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 terms get expanded what what worries uh, what worry what what concerns you uh, uh, about that well it's really yeah like I read a thing the other day about packing anxiety I hate packing to go away so I read this I can't remember where it was but it was interesting but the so it's an interesting article about the the idea that for some people packing to go away is stressful and anxiety provoking because it's actually tied into you know the idea that you have to predict what you want and what might go wrong in the future and that's actually for some people very difficult. So it's an interesting idea, but just the way they worded it, it was like they called it packing anxiety. And then the opener was like, it may not be a official condition in the DSM, but it's definitely I spoke to my friends and it's definitely a thing. And it's like you don't even by mentioning the DSM, you are you're sort of coating this in the idea that it that it that this is a disorder. And yeah, and then another one was uh, I read recently. Uh, revenge bedtime procrastination there's this huge cultural shift in something wrong there's something wrong with me or something I don't like and I think that was a Captain Beefheart album right like <laughs> <laughs> but this this um and I, I get it because there is actually quite a big comfort in 
that moment of like, ah, someone else experiences this and it has a name. It's a, it's a real entity. So I get why it happens. And I'm, yeah, I'm not immune to it myself at all. But the, the downside of it then is that people see these things as fixed or they see them as things that adjustments need to be made for. So you will have looked at this a lot for your book, but the idea of with anxiety, for example, you know, the worst thing you can do is to avoid the thing that scares you. And obviously if you're in a really bad way, then you 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 literally cannot do the thing that scares you and you need a lot of scaffolding and help and therapy to very gradually do that. But the goal is never to avoid it altogether because that's how anxiety is maintained. Um, so my worry in a way, especially with anxiety, is that once you label these things as problems with names, they become things that are fixed that perhaps you can be used as reasons to not do something and that actually you then end up perpetuating the problem. Now, I, I, I can... No. I feel like when we talk about these things, it's really difficult because uh, it immediately there's the danger that it's hard when things are kind of been reified into objects or things that maybe explain some aspect of yourself that in questioning them, people don't, that feels like a personal attack or it's invalidating them. And I wonder if you could just speak to how we go or I say we uh you know you're the researcher so not 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 me how do I how do I write some lifestyle articles that kind of no but we as a society I think it involves everyone so how how do we go about starting to sort of like in, interrogate this um in a way that doesn't because I can, I can immediately hear people jumping on and saying well yeah that what what Lucy's saying is that uh, there's no such thing as uh, there's there's no such thing as uh, depression. It's just what people need to do is just pull their socks up. And th th there's a whole bunch of bad faith actors who who go, yeah, yeah. We, what we need to do is we people need to stop being snowflakes. Is is like a word that you know you've mentioned in in your work and that appears where people are like, yeah, this is self indulgent. People are. Uh, it's 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 created by the media. People don't people don't really experience mental the, a lot of these mental illnesses. Um, and we know from like research that, you know, like this kind of like incredibly masculine, uh, like attitudes towards things can increase the incidence of, say, like severity of PTSD symptoms in soldiers. They're more likely to if they endorse ideas about men not getting anxious or distressed. So. Like this requires nuance and sensitivity, things which the media and social media are singularly dreadful at. So, you know, how what, what's your approach to this, Lucy? Uh, well, I mean, you've captured really well what yeah my biggest concern about writing the book was that I, I never wanted to be perceived in that way or, or misunderstood in that way. And it's difficult as well when you're writing something or you have a limited interview space to caveat all of this. Yeah, because especially, you know, writing for mainstream media, you have a limited amount of words and you sort of have to commit to leaving something out at some point. So I, I, I 
it's really difficult. And sometimes the pushback I've had against some things because I didn't manage to quite word it correctly has made me not want to bother because it's so frustrating. But yeah, my stance is that everything I've said is true, that I think there's a risk of over pathologizing and using these terms too flippantly and giving everything a label. But the solution, the next step is not so you all need to shut up and stop complaining and pull your socks up and let's go back to good old days when no one complained about their suffering. Really strongly disagree with that. I think the solution is how do we, yeah, to respect distress and difficulty that falls beneath the threshold of a disorder. So like anxiety, for example, it doesn't need to be generalized anxiety disorder for worry to be to feel horrible and to be really disruptive it's also you need to take the milder stuff seriously because it could just especially in young people because that could just be the start you know you don't wake up with an anxiety disorder it starts um as more manageable and then it escalates so we absolutely need to take the milder stuff more seriously and if we did I think people would feel less compelled to reach for this terminology if if we could believe each other when we say we're having a hard time and believe that other people's inner experiences that we can't see are really difficult then I think that would go some way to solving the problem but that requires a shift especially from what's happening now, because I think this backlash is starting, that now people, you know, there's a sense of like, oh, you can't all be depressed. So none of you are. So now no one ends up being believed. So I think the the need is personally to don't feel compelled to use psychiatric language if you don't really need to. And then, or if it's not helpful for you, and then the surrounding people need to believe people when they say they do have PTSD you have to believe them you can't make an outside judgment about whether they really have it or not but also yeah respect distress when someone comes forward and says you know this horrible thing happened and I'm having a hard time you know they don't especially at work you know don't don't feel that they need a label for you to believe them and take it seriously. I think one thing that the labels often people have said the labels do and it's tricky it's tricky and this isn't without its own problems as well but that it it's like uh it's like a piece of shorthand that allows them to not have to continually uh sort of explain the the history of their symptoms and what they're going through um i i mean i i have to say lucy like i i do uh, sort of share a lot of your concerns and one of the things i is is that often those labels aren't very stable and people's understanding of them have and i'm i'm not being snarky here at all but that a, there's a lot of mental health discourse on say tiktok and things like that which i think is i think it's fantastic that uh young people are having discussions around it but often there are communicators who are really communicating their own experience and saying and that is the archetype for this con- this condition you know this is what autism is this is what adhd is this is what depression is um and it's difficult they may not have really looked at what is their experience and what is some archetypal sp- experience that is perfectly generalizable 
and 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 so are you saying that the move is it important that we move towards you know talk about our emotions i feel sad rather than i feel depressed in cases where it's not and and is there and is there a place for these kind of like for diagnostic language still and if so who gets to use that and in what circumstances yeah i mean i'm definitely not anti-diagnosis i know some people are but i think diagnostic labels have all sorts of benefits for some people in some circumstances especially in terms of access to help um and also in terms of sense making you know to to understand that this is the reason why i've been having these difficulties you know this is like we were talking before there's there's enormous power in getting a name for something difficult um and sort of having that shared experience with other people so i'm not i'm not anti-diagnosis at all um i think the the trouble is that all those benefits of diagnosis are kind of being used for everyone which then means they lose currency for the people who who really need them you know it's if you have had something horrible happen to you and you're distressed and struggling in the aftermath it's useful to call it ptsd because then you're saying to people that i'm struggling you know this is really difficult and i'm having I'm reacting badly to it so i get all that i really do but then what happens to the people who um you know, I was going to say really have PTSD, but obviously PTSD is just a sort of artificial construct anyway. But the people who are really, really extremely suffering in the aftermath of an event, you know, that for months their their body and mind are kind of locked in that state of horror and it's completely disabling. If you, if everyone calls it PTSD, then those people, yeah, there's there's no language left for those people. So that's that's who I'm trying to protect, I suppose, but not in a way that criticises or belittles other people's distress. I, I get, I've, I've seen this also in the realm of autism, where there's some, I'll say, sometimes it's discussion, sometimes it's very sort of uh, emotive uh, back and forth, where there's, you know, a push against talking about high functioning low functioning and a spectrum and, and and a real push against you know making a distinction between people who are have autism who also are autistic and, and can't and uh, don't speak or don't have uh, maybe have other intellectual uh, challenges and people who would have been sort of high functioning or asperger the 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 the, 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 the uh, kind of a real push to kind of f flatten that terminology and a, and a real sense that not doing not respecting that is is an uh, attack and I, I i'm not saying like i'm not open to different people having different opinions on that but what struck me is the sort of um the the strength of feeling behind a lot of that that's for some people it's a it's a very personal thing and it's something that the Create, you know feelings of anger and fear and um i i, I wonder how how you if you've got any sense of how because I, I think what's great about the the book and i've been trying to avoid too many kind of like um being too much of a suck up by like saying how much i'm enjoying the book because that puts you in a position of having to to be modest well maybe you wouldn't but like um i, I try not to say that but what one thing that i really in, enjoyed and what was very refreshing about the book is how 
just kind of thorough you are and how often you kind of are willing to say it's unclear or we don't know, which to me it distinguishes between a sort of pundit and a scientist is the willingness to occasionally say we don't know yet and we may never know a, get a, a complete answer but here's like our best guess based on probabilistic things i want so there's a clash here between wanting to do science on something and humans reacting to things emotively and and, and do you get a sense of the way through how we start these is it something to do with conversations or is it a structural changes that you think we need? What's your what's your take on that? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I really <laughs> don't know. Um, well, I mean, I wrote the book to try and, you know, as one attempt, you know, one step towards changing the conversation a little bit. And I tried to continue to write for mainstream media, sort of, you know, arguing for and advocating for this nuance which I think actually there is quite a lot of appetite for but I I understand and I've seen and been on the receiving end of people who feel very strongly about it because it's especially when you talk about diagnosis you know this is identity this is people's lives um yeah it's meaning for them um I completely understand that I tried to just be honest that I don't I don't feel strongly about you know the the idea that you know there's one camp that thinks we should never have psychiatric diagnoses and another camp that thinks we should i feel like can't they both be true like can't can't they be good sometimes for some people and for some clinicians and for some contexts and not for others and i i i think there's appetite for that just maybe not on twitter which you know sort of favor, like, <laughs> favors the extreme viewpoints i don't but i don't think you know, Twitter is not necessarily representation of pe- what people privately think. So uh, I, I just I, I suppose what's interesting to me out of that is just this, um, that as soon as, <laughs> as as soon as we're talking about these things, it, it almost means that. Is th- but is there an alternative? I suppose this is what I wanted to ask you is it, to whenever we talk about you know some people that we this term should be reserved maybe for these kind of and then there's a kind of subclinical border um who polices the borderline because that's to me where the kind of conflict happens really is it is any kind of edge case and i think this happens in any kind of ideological or anything to do with identity as soon as you get an, a, a sort of hinterland that's where a lot of the conflict happens you know it doesn't tend to happen on the very extremes either way because those are clear it's 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 on the border and and it's yeah i i and i guess because historically we've often seen like terms expand rather than contract i wonder you know who who asserts that that kind of like that point yeah i mean i guess officially it's that it's uh people who write the dsm and clinicians and researchers but you know once a term is out there you can't 
control who uses it or how they use it. How they use it. My intention is not just to find someone in the grey area who finds the term social anxiety disorder useful and take it away from them and say, you know, no, you're not allowed that because you don't meet all the criteria. My goal really was more to be helpful for the people in the grey area who find those labels weighty and don't necessarily want to take them on. I, 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 in my own experience, found it extremely useful to realise the point at which I no longer met criteria for an anxiety disorder. And it's really helpful for me to to know just how bad you need to be officially to, to use that language, because it reminds me that actually sometimes when I feel anxious, it's not it's not oh it's it's not the disorder coming back or it's not something dysfunctional you're more in the realm of kind of normal human experience and lots of people have said that to me about the book that it's reassuring like oh hang on a minute actually what I'm experiencing is horrible or unpleasant but it's actually not in the realm of a disorder so that was really the goal rather than trying to you know snatch things away from people who are in distress and trying to understand themselves yeah I really it's a bit and I suppose like when you've been through something like as you have and as I have um it's a little bit (laughs) like my dad used to drive a Citroen 2CV and he had several friends whose 2CVs had um spontaneously caught on fire while they were driving along and they'd had to park at the side of the motorway as it went up in flames and and one of his friends only discovered when they looked down and they could smell a funny smell and the soles of their shoes were melting against the pedals and so it did mean that whenever I was in that car any sort of like feeling of like being a bit hot you'd go ah we about to go turn into an inferno and of course no it's just like sometimes it was a bit stuffy in the car and it was nice to know that sort of small changes in temperature weren't the beginning of like a fireball and I I guess that's an odd analogy but you know what what you're saying is that you sometimes those things can feel like uh, alarm bells for something dreadful when we can learn that they're part of the human experience exactly and actually not only is that comforting in the moment but it can actually stop the very problem that you're scared of from actually starting so like one aspect of uh mindfulness-based cognitive therapy for depression is to try and uh to prevent relapse which it's effective for is to try and teach people that a low mood is just a low mood so you can feel down sometimes and it doesn't necessarily mean you're at the start of a spiral for feeling depressed because actually as soon as you interpret the low mood as depression starting you actually set off that whole chain of thoughts and emotion that triggers a depressive episode and I wish that was more in the public domain the cost of labeling low mood as depression can actually contribute to depression itself yeah i think um we certainly have those interpretive lenses that can be really uh can certainly make what we pay attention to and what seems salient uh pop and make us i i i I i'm gonna i i I, there's a question i want to ask in just a second but i just once since you've mentioned that i just want to ask this when i i see a lot of the time people pick get diagnoses 
and then their social media becomes and I am caricaturing slightly and I do cop to that I don't want to make this sound like I'm saying everyone does this but they'll get a diagnosis for some condition and then immediately their social media there's a kind of sense of almost elation and then their social media becomes a flurry of them reporting uh, their life through the lens of those diagnostic criteria so um, and they'll be like well look at look at me i just had pineapple pizza that's a typical adhd person kind of thing obviously i'm joking but they they'll they really sort of start leaning into and looking for those criteria and i just i, I, I don't i'm just want to be very careful i'm not suggesting i don't I don't mean to suggest invalidate those things but it does no is that how do you is there ways that we can like take on diagnoses and not make them identities i don't know i i i i'm kind of it's kind of a leading question maybe very silly but it's just of diagnosis as identity is interesting i don't think it's inherently a bad thing because i think it's it's yeah, it's sense making. And if you have had a whole, often a lifetime of difficulties that you didn't understand or didn't have language for, it's powerful and comforting and helpful for yourself, but also for communicating what you're like to other people. So I get why it happens. I really do. Um, the, yeah, the only risk I think is, I guess, particularly in adolescence, which I'm interested in, is when you're forming your identity, you know, and social media is all about, you know, what makes you different and what's your identity and what can you shout about to make you distinctive? Um, you know, if those terms are co-opted for those purposes in a, in a way that ends up becoming limiting, particularly like, oh, I have social anxiety disorder, therefore I can't do X, Y and Z when actually you, the better approach might be good to get support to to do the things that make you anxious. That's where the downside comes. And again, like everything, I think all of that can be true at the same time. I think it can be good and helpful to have your diagnosis on your Twitter bio for some people and maybe not for others. The final thing I, I wanted to ask, and I feel, I hope this doesn't seem like I'm kind of like trivialising your work into a kind of listicle of tips, but I, but we, we i'm really interested in like you came to you came to write this book and i i think like anyone would say like writing a book especially when we're so so much like nuance and taking such a huge subject and trying to sort of say something and satisfying all these different kind of things that you wanted you know to to do to be respectful but also to be saying something not being woolly and all i wonder if you have a sense of um some of the sort of things that you've learned from your research and the things you've read about maintaining uh so good sort of mental health in a kind of subclinical level um because anxiety you know comes up in writing all the time and you know being disheartened and um are there any sort of principles that people can apply when doing something like writing when we're trying to maintain our mental health that maybe are not you know things that we can take away that we don't need a diagnostic or clinical label for but that are just general print practical principles of good uh, emotional hygiene i guess not in terms of when you're writing or just in general well i i guess it's in general but i suppose in in, in writing especially is, is something where you're kind of like often managing like 
I think anxiety often comes up in writing because you're managing lots of uncertainty. Um, you're managing uh, motivation. You know, you're writing something where the end goal is quite far away. Uh, you're there's 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 what you were talking about with that kind of like sense of performance being a fairly when people have to produce a five minute speech as, as a as a fairly consistent way of producing anxiety that fear of social judgment well we're talking about a sort of nine hour speech that you're having to work on and produce as well so i wonder if if there are any ways that people can like manage the sort of uh or it could be just general uh, mental health hygiene things that are beneficial for people who are spending a lot of time alone at a computer I mean, yeah the general mental health hygiene i don't think i'd have anything more insightful to say than what's already out there and it sounds a bit kind of flippant and too and personalized really I think it depends on different people but in terms of writing I think the only thing that makes me anxious about writing is about uh being misunderstood and um yeah the message being misconstrued um because I'm so I'm so not interested in being controversial or having a strong stance on things and it I find it deeply frustrating when people yeah make assumptions about what you think that aren't right and then criticize you for it and and, and you you've said that you've said that 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 has happened with your you your your book uh, and, and were those people were there was those were those people who when you've had those kind of pushback has it been people who've actually read your work or are they kind of just do you get the sense that they're interpreting it and well that's another good point as well with the book and with articles that get shared on twitter with the single headline you know you you don't know whether they are critiquing the piece of work or whether i mean what often happens is that people come to the book or the articles with their own strong feelings and it's it's sort of I've learned this it sort of doesn't matter what you say they just they just use it as a springboard to critic to promote their own ideas or to criticize what they think your ideas are and you cannot protect yourself fully from that I mean the solution from that is really to just um care less about what random people on Twitter think and say um but yeah the other solution really is just to you know, be careful about what you write to not, I mean, you can be opinionated if you want. It's just, I'm not particularly opinionated. So I, I stuck with that to the book, you know, to communicate nuance to often to get other people who you respect to read over stuff. I mean, I, I, I do that sometimes with kind of mainstream media. Uh, my editor was brilliant in terms of discussing these ideas and he was extremely useful sounding board for uh yeah the bits that I was concerned about particularly for example in terms of saying oh the whole mental health crisis is caused by people misinterpreting things you know so we spent a lot of time thinking about wording um so yeah be careful get feedback from people that you respect um and then, yeah, realise that when you've done what you can, you can't fully protect yourself from people who have strong opinions on Twitter. 
has it has it been a, has it been a good experience kind of like writing the booking and getting it out there because i'm not you know from from what you're saying you've kind of talked about mainly at my prompting admittedly um the points at which people have um there's been you know pushback and uh you know i'm sure there's been some sort of genuine uh good faith engagement but um but um what have been some of the i wonder if you could it's just to finish off on what, what have been some of the positives of getting the the book out there and into the hands of people and when is yours out by the way have you started oh mine's may the 4th may the 5th maybe the first week of may mental health week i think okay perfect so you've got all this um Oh yeah, I, I wasn't. I was. I was asking out of genuine interest, but of course, yeah, I would. I would love to read the tea leaves and hear what I've got coming down the pipeline. I was just wondering whether you've experienced it yet, or whether you're about about to. Um, it's just been really lovely to get emails and feedback on Twitter from people saying that it helped, or that it was useful, or that it was a use, yeah, a useful contribution to the conversation. Um, that it made them think differently about things or do things differently. Um, that's very rewarding to read that. And it's just led to a lot of cool opportunities and talking to a lot of interesting people, um, you know, through doing podcasts like this and doing talks. And uh, yeah, that has been incredibly rewarding and interesting. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for speaking to me today. I really appreciate it, Lucy. And um the book it's uh losing our minds what mental health what mental illness really is is coming out in paperback it i can't is it april that it's coming out in paper april and it's not called losing our minds anymore it's going to just be called the subtitle which is what mental illness really is and what it isn't okay cool um i'm going to put a link to uh that in the show notes of today's episode so if anyone wants to uh pre-order the uh new paperback version um then you can do so um, if people uh, want to find out more about your uh, work on online, is there somewhere that they can go? Do you have a website or anything like that, Lucy? <laughs> I do have a website that's currently being rebuilt, um, but hopefully shortly lucyfolks.com should take you somewhere. Um, yeah, and I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Okay, awesome. Thank you very much. And to everyone listening, thank you for listening and I hope you have a wonderful week of writing. <laughs>